Empire State South. There's probably loud noises of ice being thrown around behind me. It's okay, it's all clean. Next to me is a, an amazing writer and journalist who's Kim Severson. And Kim is a writer for the New York Times. Kim, tell me what you do for the Times. Because it changed recently. Uh, thanks for asking. And here we are in the South, which here I have to say, at Empire State South. But which you're not is, the South writer now. I was. There's another person. Right. I was. I came down here from New York City to be the national core, the bureau chief for the national desk. Had written about food for a long time and was kind of interested in a change and happy to get out of New York for a minute and thought, oh, I'll try Atlanta. Why not? And then here I am, eight years later, however long it's been. Uh, and now I am. I did that for about four years and I did. You know, hurricanes and shootings and politics and all the things you do on the national desk. And uh, about four years ago, my boss, Sam Sifton, and the Times decided to double down on cooking and launch our cooking app and get more serious about the cooking piece of what we do. And uh, wanted me to come back to the food section and do kind of national food corresponding, which basically means that I go around the country and try to pick up stories, whether they're, I mean, you know, going down to, Puerto Rico to hang out with Jose Andres while he was cooking or going to a little farm in Indiana where the cheesemaker is about to lose her farm, you know, all those sorts of things. So I just sort of range around and... So everything now is in relation to food in some way? Yep. So I am a food correspondent. Although occasionally when there's, you know, some big terrible thing, I might get pulled in to help out a little bit. Because of regional connections. Yeah, and just... Because all hands on but deck. But Sifton, Sam Sifton, who Sifton. runs the... Uh, Sifty is a very Sifty. bright man. Um, and they, in an age where newspapers are supposed to make no money anymore, uh, the New York Times has really successfully monetized the food section. Food and, and crosswords are saving the day. I, well, that's because I subscribe to both. Thank Kim. you. Thank You're welcome. you. Welcome. I do Hugh. the Sudoku. I do the easy and I, the medium. I'll tell you. Because <laughs> look at the big brain on you, Hugh Atchison. I know. No, I can't the do the heart. I can't. The brain right. is not that big to do the heart. Right. And I can do the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday crossword. And then I have to wait till Sunday and do the big one very, okay. very slowly. Okay. But it is interesting to me that so many, so many aspects of food media tried to monetize. I mean, Serious Eats was a really interesting concept. Really, really Ed. Ed ahead took of it his so time. seriously, and Kenji was so amazing yep. in, in writing thoroughly researched recipes that made sense and were super researched, and but they just could never monetize to the degree. So it it, it lends me to like this uh, gifted arsenal of people uh, at the times, like Melissa Clark and Sam Sifton, and you guys have other national cor- national food correspondents like John T. Edge. And then Brett Anderson recently yeah, came Brett's on board. Yeah, our brother Brett's going to be with us for a year or so, maybe more, if we can entice him. That was a big Brett is score a wonderful for us. human Yeah, with the craziest laugh Truly. in the world. Truly. Giggle, uh, giggles like a schoolgirl. Oh, he guffaws. Yes, I think he he's guffaws. great. But it, it is really interesting to see that that success is there. And it opens up the allowance to give you a budget and the times a budget to have you do stories like there, thank God your bar crew is I working. Mean, well, look at they are really working. Give that young they man are, a raise who just dumped that ice in there. Really, Good for them. They're really loud. Well, I tell you the thing that the we kind of look at ourselves, and I think culture to a degree, the culture sections, the food section, crosswords. We sort of look at it like we're at war now, right? So our you know we are back here rolling bandages and growing the victory garden. So our frontline reporters like Maggie Haberman can be in there doing the incredibly hard work of covering the government right now and covering 
all of these sort of horrible world events. So we really like to sort of see our role as very essential. And if we're here making money for the paper, that's a great thing. And lo and behold, many people are really, really want to learn how to cook and they want to be part of a cooking community. So, um, you know, we have this cooking app. And the other thing, um, this is great, the ice. I'm making a very important point about the state of journalism. Uh, <laughs> I'm hold, about please. to have to yell at somebody <laughs> for the first so time. So journalism really matters. Um, hold on. We'll edit this out. Yes. Brad, can you get them to shut up with the ice? Um, okay. So I, what is, the thing that's behind the cooking app that matters uh, that people don't see is you do have Melissa and you have Sam's kind of vision of what makes a good story. We had Samin writing for us, you know, and putting all these great recipes in our database. But Sam did the smart thing, and the paper had the resources to hire all these great young uh, digital people who understood how to make the app work. Like, you know, is this comfortable for somebody to look up the recipe? Should the recipe scroll this way? Should it scroll that way? Where are you standing in the kitchen? All the I mean, time? You, yeah, is it readable right. while you're at the right. stove? Should they be side by side? How, you know, and, uh, and really good editors who make sure that, you know, we test and double test and make sure that the teaspoons all match the whatever. So he got all these young digital people who maybe didn't know a lot about cooking, but as you know, uh, the kids today love the food, and they're great, and they're really interested in food. So he kind of made these 10 or 12 uh, people designing our app part of our food team. And as you know, food, whenever you're around food, it makes family, right? So with these great kids figuring out the app, and I call them kids because I'm an old lady, and that's fine. Uh, you, you know, they're, they're working kids on the these app, days. and Sam's like, Oh, this is Kim Severson. She just came back from wherever. This is Melissa Clark, and she's going to put together the Instant Pot, Instant Pot Guide. And they'd meet us, and we'd meet them and talk about things. And uh, so that kind of community build up so people would want to come back and use the app. And then we also have a really good service. So you have people who can write in and say, I'm outraged. I substituted cornstarch for the flour, and my recipe didn't work. And so then people gently, instead of saying, That's because you're a moron. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're going to be forced to cancel your subscription, <laughs> you know, we talk to them. And there's like this crazy big Facebook page that, like, uh, you know, so, so there's all these points in which you have to work for every subscriber you have and care about them. And I think some of the early digitization of food sites, while they had great material, um, that just on the ground customer service piece, they pr didn't have the resources to do it, you know? Yeah, but that's all about resources to do it. It really is. That's why and, the, yeah. yeah, and that's why we see the demise of some of those great websites and just they didn't have the cash. Can we speak about one other um, website uh, yes. or food digitization thing that I think is going really well? Is I have lately been really impressed with how they're doing things at Bon Appetit only because I love, I don't know if you'll watch their videos at all their youtube but that whole like turning their test kitchen into these little i am i mean i watched like 10 minutes i watched what's his name trying to recreate jamie oliver's impossible burger or no not impossible his what is his name um what is the guy who the chris the guy who's the taste guy he's like he's great super taster i was like i don't have 10 minutes to do anything in my day and i was like i was into it i was so that's like genius well, right? it's also that test kitchen's like on the 46th story of the yeah the Trade it's a beautiful test kitchen building at WTC, and it's, uh, it's a stunning right. test kitchen. Right, but they do a great job at that magazine. They've really, really. Uh, I mean, they sort of survived the the dark times, I think, and are coming out the other side. I mean, the the loss of gourmet was right. terribly sad in a lot of ways in food media, but yep. you could see it coming, and they made their choice, and they chose yep. Bon App, and Bon App's done really well with food photography. And not making it look. I think they've 
became very conscious not making it too precious because right. I think there was a move towards there everything was. looking like it was on a Brooklyn table. And right. they're kind was of fought against that. Didn't Savor start the whole, like, was it Chris? Uh, started the whole scatter the food across the table look. That right. was the Savor and shoot from the top look. Yep. yep. That was, I remember those days. Those days. So I'm looking at a couple of your recent articles. Now, let me first say this. How did you um, get knighted with the position of writing every culinary obituary <laughs> right <laughs> whatever happens um, i know did you is that on your cv i, know when, I write about dead people when i know when fa- i meet people i'm like be nice to me i may be writing your obituary i like to say i'm putting the bitch back in obituary <laughs> you that's I think, my thing but they're beautifully written and the, and the one i'm really uh looking at right now is leah chase yeah. uh who at 96 passed away recently and who was just the most amazing uh uh, most amazing force of culinary wisdom in New Orleans and meant so much to that city and so much to fried chicken and yeah. the world of Southern food as we know it. Um, but this is a beautiful, like, but, but how do you write an obituary? I mean, other than just doing a biography of somebody, right. what are you looking to evoke? Like, because well, you got to get to something you've got to, I mean, there's something in an obituary. Uh, the reasoning as to why it's being written. What's the right. story? I mean, obituaries are such a great, um, a great form of journalism, and they're their own craft. It's sort of like being able to write a great baseball story. You know, there's it's a it's a craft unto itself. And I certainly am not one of the great obituary writers of the world, and there are people who are. But I um, and this one, I was very glad they put on the front page because I think that speaks to it. But you. You know, you take, ideally, you ha- know a lot about the person, and I have reported on a lot of these people that have been reporting on food for 100 years, and so I n- understood her place in the culinary uh, firmament, right? And, you know, you have to write it with a sense of scope and a sense of heft. And the other thing that's great about obituaries is you get to kind of uh, loosen up a little, and you're like, I'm saying this is true. This is this person's life. This is what they meant. It's not as constrictive as a traditional news story. Um, and there's a, and then you, there's a certain kind of honor that comes with it. So you you certainly don't want to just have it be flowery and gushy because nobody wants to read that. Trust me, that's kind of boring. Uh, so you definitely have to put in the the warts and all. Uh, but you can do it in a way that you know the person just died. This isn't. Um, you know, we're not trying to take down a president or anything. You're just trying to reflect a life. So I just sort of think about that. It, it allows you to storytell, you know. Well, a it's really great. really well-written obituary, which is, is, can be read by somebody who has no idea who Leah Chase is. And you and learn history. And informed of something. Right, right. And beautiful and informed of their pertinence to it. But I'll, I'll read the last paragraph because it's beautifully done. It says, Mrs. Chase believed in corporal punishment, opposed abortion, and believed women should dress modestly. But she was always a champion of women, especially young women, coming up in the kitchens of America's restaurants. Her frequent advice to them was, you have to look like a girl, act like a lady, think like a man, and work like a dog. And that is so Leah Chase, because I knew Leah Chase. And she was that. But she was such a supporter. But she has very strict rules. Yeah. Yeah, she was old school. She was old school. And, you know, coming up as she did in, in the times that she did being... African American, and uh, in a time when you know she had that same sense of it's the same reason that the early civil rights uh, protesters would always dress well, show up, be well behaved. There was a sense that if we are, uh, you know, if we are, are respectful of ourselves and our cause, then other people that, will be respectful. That will magnetically attract other 
And she's also credence. a hardcore credence. Catholic like her. The stuff she did for Duke. She used to tell me stories like her husband, Dookie. She was going to be a good wife. She would take his shoes off when he came home at the end of the day. She'd probably worked harder than he had. Rub his feet, get him a drink. Like that was old school, you know, male-female marriage roles. And, you know, she's like, it's, you know, it's what you did. And she, But she at the same time didn't take any crap from anybody i guess we're on a podcast i could say shit and not you worry. can say shit you can say whatever hell you want. yeah so you know it's i think obituaries when you read them ideally you learn something about history and you learn something about culture even if you have no idea you know you could read about the person who invented the slinky and you'd like it, learn it, amazing that's things funny because i love actually you're you're totally right that i mean it's a it's a historical narrative of you can learn a lot in obituary i mean reading obituaries about people who passed away or who were World War II vets and they're passing away recently and it's just about how they, you know, how you encapsulate their war life with their life after that. It's right. just really And the history of what was happening when they were alive and at their peak, you know, and then it, it allow it's just a great way to read about history without it feeling like history, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's one perspective. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another beautiful, this is a really interesting article because i think we know this is on the trail of tupelo honey liquid gold from the swamps are you a tupelo honey fan do you like tupelo i find it very powerful i had never understood tupelo i mean i i understood a lot better after this article yeah i I had a good tacit understanding of it i never really loved it all that much yeah that i find it it's very Specific. To me, it's like uh, Mahon, um chestnut honey. Yeah, not quite as heavy, though, I think. No. I mean, it's more vegetal, for sure, yeah. the honey. I, I, I'm not, you know, I didn't love honey. Ruth Reichel, by the way, side note, famously, the one food she hates is honey. Just, there's your, you know, dinner party trivia tip for listeners. She just that hates really honey. Me. She hates honey. Has always hated honey. Does she have a, right. uh, a short... Form Japanese style poem about she hating? should honey because terrible I hate Twitter? it yeah Her, uh, the deer is here yeah. and buns <laughs> and butter yeah whatever yeah the haiku sweaty of windows yes. brioche baking <laughs> New York <laughs> wet puddle on floor deer. yeah <laughs> it's like what okay where are we going God bless her. Um, but yeah so I didn't know a lot about it but I ran into this guy who was like told me the guy who sells honey here in Atlanta at the farmers market this Tupelo and and he's he's a great guy and. Uh, was talking to him. He's got 150 hives around Atlanta. So I was sort of interested in that. And then he's like, oh, I got to go down with my Tupelo guy. And I'm like, what, what is the deal with Tupelo? And I had heard from someone else that uh, the hurricanes had really taken out a lot of the Tupelo uh, hives. And that also... Did it take out the hives or take out the trees? Took out both, the trees and the hives. Okay. It stripped a lot of the trees, but it really blew their hives out. And also the, there was an issue with uh, the water flow down there and so they were already losing trees because the um, swamp was drying up so there were all these so it's kind of like oh man so I finally talked him into taking me down with this honey this tupelo guy these guys are secretive like you can't believe because they know where their little tupelo groves are and they don't want anybody else down there and you can get a lot of you know you get a lot of money for the Tupelo honey. It's kind of like a trout hole. Right. You don't it's tell like, anybody yeah. your fishing hole. So I finally talked to him and let me come and hang out with them. And and I'm telling you, I really have never tasted anything. Like when he pulled it out of the so hive. Let's, well, let's explain to people what exactly is Tupelo okay. honey. So Tupelos are trees that grow in swamps in a really specific, the, the white Tupelo that honey comes from, from a really specific part of um, of South Georgia and North Florida. So there's the swamps down there, and there's these trees. That's the only place in the country they grow. There are black tupelos that grow up in Mississippi. Thus, you have Tupelo, Mississippi, but those are not 
uh, the honeybees don't like those to make honey from. So these white tupelos only grow in this one specific spot. And they grow these flowers. They're kind of tall and sort of gnarly trees that grow up. And they grow these white flowers that look like pom-poms, kind of whitish green. And they are there for about two weeks on a good season. And the bees... Bees are amazing. So they know exactly. Listen to me. Bees are amazing. Bees here. are amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so the bees at the right time, they know to, they're like, okay, these guys are uh, all the nectar's here. Let's go, guys. And so they'll wait until it's just right. And then all the bees, if you have hives down there in the swamp, will just go up and get the tupelo for two weeks until they're done. And then once that's done, they'll move on to gallberry or other things because the bees are like, okay, we're done here. So for these so two how do weeks. They, how do they sequester then and get the beehives? Like, how do they know it's all tuple at that point? Right. So generally the bees, they know the bees will have to know they will go for what's perfectly in, in uh, Bloom. blooming at that moment. And so the bees do the work. So the bees, so they'll know that it's happening and they'll just gather it. Like the bees will come back and they'll, they'll be checking their hives and they'll just get full of honey. Um, and tupelo itself has almost a greenish tint to it. Looks real specific. Now, this story, they, it was a big debate over whether Georgia or Florida had the purest and they send the honey out. To a to, testing facility. And they, you can tell by the amount of pollen that's in them. Like, is it 56? Is it 96%? So you can get a lot of fake Tupelo out there. Um, generally, it's uh, there's no law that says if you, we sell label something Tupelo and it's not. Um, but it, there are, you know, like everything else, you have to have a good provider and you have to know who you're buying it from. And, you know, these guys down south, and they, they'll put it in big 55-gallon Drums. But I mean, it's like the most expensive honey there is. It is expensive. I, although I think there's a honey in Turkey that's more expensive than Tupelo honey. But it's just all these guys down in these swamps who figured it out and they're like, all right, they're going to buy a lot of, you know, because it's so hard to get. Yeah. Right. But the, and then, and then what will happen is the, as the Tupelo's bloom starts to fade, the bees, gallberry is another thing that goes right after Tupelo. Um, this uh, soursop, um, up in the Appalachia Mountains is a similar sort of rare yeah. honey that yeah. is um, got a little different texture to me. But it's amazing that it even works. I'm like, how do you even know they're not mixing pollen from everything else? And uh, these guys, if they put them in a tupelo grove, that's all the bees are going to go for. And you have to monitor every day and make sure that it doesn't start to turn. And these guys watch the blossoms. And is the, I mean, are the, bee, is the bee population there? Is it growing? Is it coming back? Or is it is it still well, in a this, stage Well, in of South Georgia, there's a lot. They're doing a really good job, I think. Um, and there's a lot more in South Georgia than there is in Florida right now. Um, I think that they're coming back. A lot of these guys move their bees around, which I didn't understand. So they'll take their beehives in, let them work for a couple of weeks. And then they'll like this one fellow I wrote about, then he puts his bees on a truck and trucks them up to Maine to uh, pollinate the blueberry fields in Maine. Hmm. And the, I'm like, how did the bees survive that? And he's got like a GPS tracker. So, and he, he has his drivers. They can't stop, you know, or if they, they stop, they has to be in a cool place. He's got a water down that like he's, he watches like where his trucks go, and if they at all gets like if they get stuck in traffic, he gets all nervous, and he's like, "You've got to get off the road and take the bees." Like it's a whole thing moving like the bees up and truck. down. You can't yeah. really stop. Yeah, you get stuck in traffic. But you I love this honey, shipment. and I didn't find it as strong as you find. I mean, I found I was, I was like, I I still have a couple of mason How jars much is of it? it. I think it's like twenty five bucks a pound. You can buy it for okay. depending on where you get it. Um, they sell it if you go down to one of the. Festivals, maybe it'll be eleven or twelve dollars for. Why did Van Morrison call that song "Tupelo Honey"? 
sweet as Tupelo honey. I only made one but, subtle I mean, reference honey to it. Tupelo honey is not even that well known. Or sweet. So how because did Van Morrison know about it in the how 60s? How did Van Mo- Exactly. Maybe because of Mississippi. He I don't is, know. He He's is a, master. a culinary and master. Tupelo of honey is so nice to say. <laughs> Tupelo honey. I don't know how I... I know. I, I thought I, I'm only going to allow to use one reference to that song. It's certainly not going to be the lead because that would just Did be cheese ass. Who's your direct editor with these things? Is uh, Sifton, depends. Uh, Sifton this or. Was, here it is. So I just put oh. it subtly down below and I didn't even mention the song and people kind of are like, why didn't you mention it? But I say in yeah, one I parenthetical, did, I go. Yeah. I say it may not unlike the song. You're, you're. It's a really long article, though. Cam. I'm sorry We're because you know what they pay me. Difficult. They don't even pay they me pay by, by the word. They don't pay you by no, the word. No, they don't. But I just made a mention of like this. It may be the song that's going through your head right now because everybody knows it. And then I had people calling me up saying, "How could you not mention Tupelo Honey?" And I said, "It's in there." I you did. I did. <laughs> so. <laughs> anyway, Sifton, uh, Patrick Farrell, who's kind of the workhorse editor of the section, great guy, really great guy, old Metro editor, and a really um, just a, you know, he's the guy you can sit and argue uh, word usage with and punctuation. He's that kind of editor, and he's fun, really fun. It's like when we, I turn in a story and we get on the phone together, I, it's a great hour or two where we sit talking over the story and uh, he's a he's a very deft and experienced editor. Sifton will come in sometimes if he's not around, or Sifton sort of top notes everything. So I'll be like, I'm thinking about this story, and we'll kick around like the concept for it. Is this a story now? Like Sifton will run news stories a little bit more. It'll be like yeah. we just wrote about the Madison Park guys, um, eleven Madison Park guys breaking up, and and that was a, that was a really uh, well done. We had that thing. on the fish on the line for a long time and i talked to them back in april and they're like no we think we're gonna work it out just can you hold off and this is uh the story of 11 madison park which is arguably these days probably the most important restaurant in the united states it's been number one on the same pellegrino 50 best list it's will gadara runs the front of the house and daniel whom runs the kitchen and is the chef and they co-owned it and along with a lot of other projects that they had on the go and they recently kind of had a uh, business divorce, and yep. uh, you wrote a Kim wrote a really uh, illustrative article about it, and really interesting. Um, so what? Why? What did you well, distill down the, to? Why did they break up? Well, you know, no one really knows the truth of two people. They they didn't get along for a long time. I mean, they butted heads, and people will tell you that. Uh, I think they both shared a vision. One theory is that you know, will. Um, Will got with Christina Tozzi and married and kind of, I think, for a long time, the restaurant was his uh, spouse, you know, yeah. and also Daniel was going through very, he's had ups and downs in his relationship. He's now famously dating uh, Lorene Jobs, Steve Jobs' oh, wife. I didn't know that. Uh, uh, the late Steve Jobs' wife. Um, uh, and he's, uh, and they've been dating since maybe... This is gossipy now since no, maybe good. the January. Nobody um, listens to this anyhow. Can we find? So I think, I think ultimately they uh, wanted to go in in different directions. I think Will had some ideas about what uh, he's he's into hospitality, right? And yeah. so, and I think Daniel, Make it nice. I think Daniel kind of wants to be seen as a sort of artist the way that Chang is or um, Renee Renzepi is, and I think he. There was a clash between that idea of just being a great restaurant and being about service and an artistic vision as a chef. And these two guys wanted those two different things. 
Uh, so I think that maybe be part of the, of the clash there of, of what they wanted. You know, Will wants to, you know, he's got the dream weaver. He, he's all about the Danny Meyer style of serve a handpicked by Danny Meyer to make it happen. And I think then once Christina came in and Daniel, you know, got, I, these two men who gave their entire lives to this restaurant for they 10 or 12 years. They found other interests. They found other people. They found other people. They started yeah. dating other people. And then, and but it's totally understandable. Wait, okay, which, I don't think it's scandalous in any way no, other it's than. it's not scandalous I think what people way. were upset about is they feel like they portrayed themselves as this great bromance and there was a lot of trouble See, behind I the scenes. I think the people were just reading into that. I hate and, the people. And because we don't of like celebrity, the it's like. Yeah. yeah. But, but that's interesting. But, you know, why, is, had, why is that news? That, why? Why? Why is America interested in that? Why now? they are breaking up? You mean, or why? Or, why? Or why the, is America interested in like America would have not been interested in a breakup? Nineteen ninety nine. Wolfgang yeah. Puck and yeah, his what general happened? manager. Well, what happened is in the last twenty years, we've. I mean, I can remember in the late nineties when the the then the gen xers it was a young generation was the first time that they were spending more money of it more of their disposable income at restaurants than any other form of entertainment and that was like a big news i remember writing that story in the the san francisco chronicle it was a phenomenal shift so people would maybe grab a bite before they would go to a concert or a movie or something else restaurants became the thing people would go to that was their entertainment right that became what they would spend their that was their event for the night uh, so we have this whole generation of people that grew up and, you know, all the celebrity chef stuff, all of the, you know, food now, as I say all the time, is our cultural currency. And it's sort of like the way film was in the 70s. That's how we worked out our shit with all the Scorsese films mm-hmm. and the changing sexual mores and all of that was through film. And in the same way, it was sort of jazz in the 20s was kind of reflected the thing where we worked out a lot of our stuff. So food comes along. We've got a digital revolution happening we need some low stake shit to start to practice to become technological so we can send pictures of food to each other. We can, you know, celebrity food gossip. Food porn is born. Yeah, well, food porn and celebrity gossip just shot up once because we needed some low stakes stuff to start to learn technology as a culture, I think, right? Um, now we're getting much more advanced in all that in politics and, you know, we see how technology is affecting big things. But in the beginning, so all that happened when people started Celebrity Chef, Food Network, technology we needed low stakes fodder food porn all of that started happening and then i also think you had a generation and you know this very well because your work you do with um teaching kids to cook so we had two working moms or two working parents right so there's a generation of kids who didn't know how to cook because they were the latch and mcdonald's in the 70s moms are working kids. kids are not and so you don't have moms teaching kids to cook so that's why you see someone like Rachel Ray who's able to come in with a 30-minute meal and ha- essentially have to reteach an entire generation to cook. And you you know this. you are And feeds dogs a lot of dog well, food. Well, she does, man. She's making some bank off that I dog food. I think she's food. making some money off the dog food. Yeah. I've got to be honest. Although she gives – I have to say she gives a heck of a lot of that dog food money away to dog food, to, oh, I to know. pet they, things. They, all the celebrity people in the culinary world who I choose to make fun of and demonize, yeah. they're actually kind of all wonderfully – uh, they, empathetic and compassionate, interesting yeah. humans. And the I mean, ones that yeah, aren't, some of them aren't. Really but like stick Guy Fieri, I make fun of all the time. Yeah. And Guy's actually a really beautiful and, soul. And means well. Means, <laughs> means so well. well. He really um, does. I, so, I still, my, the, the problem I have with Guy is still like, this is Donkey a sauce. That's all you have to say. Life off of being on a show where you weren't supposed to be able to cook well. Right. Like amateur chef type right. thing. And parlayed it into this monstrous career and i'm still like how did he do that yeah i don't know it's the sun i don't know i don't know but guys you know and he 
He also, there's a certain segment of the male population that just, like, relates to him like, like nothing else. Nuts. It's crazy. Because I mean, there are a lot of people with truck nuts. Listen, I will say he nuts. came to the New York Times to do an he interview with us. He had truck nuts on his truck, he too. Did. Guy did. Did yeah. he? I st- yeah. The guy who just built our new fence had truck nuts. And I yeah. just trying to explain that to my daughter. She's like, what are those? And I'm like. I don't know, honey. It's, it's something a, to help tow something. It's is an what ode I said. to a testicular sack <laughs> hanging from the back of a truck. Don't, why don't you get right, it? Right, right, right. <laughs> Go read your books. But uh, anyway, so but but when we walked a guy through the the Times newsroom, there were these like nerdy forties, fifty something editors who were just like, "Oh, that's God." Oh, and so now, yeah. I was like, I guess I see where that comes from. Yeah. But I don't know. So anyway, getting back to your point of why we care about Daniel Hume and Will breaking up. So, you know, culture now, food is our cultural currency, and here you have the two chefs at the, you know, top of their game. It's like, it's like you know, LeBron James or something. It's like these are the guys, so if they were in some kind of split up. Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like that, um, I think. What do you think? I mean, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's such the apex of dining, and that restaurant – I would say that equally, I think they're both extraordinarily important to the success of that restaurant. And that's rare. Right. Right. Uh, and that could bring a lot of pressure. Right. It's easier sometimes if it's very unequal. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the, the chef is bringing a ton, but the front of the house is doing their yeah. job well. Right. And maybe the chef has influence on that. It's completely different when you've got two evenly powerful people in a relationship right. for that long. Right. Bringing all the gays on them. Right. Right. So... I don't know. I mean, but it's also natural. It's these things happen. And so I don't know if it's newsworthy, but uh, well, it's I don't sort know. of like if you consider, I mean, face it, most people aren't eating at 11 Madison Park and you know, it's quite expensive to eat there. It's very 1%y sort of stuff. Um but so if you look at those kind of chefs as um, you know, the artists, like it's different than the regular food world, right? They are sort of the artists of um you know they are they are the they are the elites of doing this craft this art food as food as art food as this high level thing, so if you consider they're the Beyonce they're the star they're at the top of that game you always are interested in the people who are doing the very highest expression of yeah. something so that makes it newsworthy it would be different if you know the restaurant wasn't that good or you know I mean I don't think you know if I mean there are certain chefs who it's kind of fascinating. You know, and also they put brought this on themselves to a degree in that they presented themselves in their social media feed and their interviews as this kind of thing, this couple, you know. Well, I mean, I think they're projecting. Uh, and it's a, you know, multi-million dollar deal going down, which, of course, I couldn't get the number. I'm sorry to say they wouldn't tell me. But, you know, it's, oh, so they've got their you know, fingers in a lot it is of several right million now. dollars I mean, at nomad. stake. So you could argue just from, yeah, from a business standpoint that it's oh, yeah. an interesting story. No. And, yeah. Nomad and he's opening, uh, they're opening a restaurant in London. In London. They've got two one, Nomads. Got and nomad I know Hotel, LA. Yeah. They've got a Nomad in Las Vegas. Now, let me now. ask you this as a side note, if I may. Do you enjoy the four-hour tasting meal like that you would get? At, would you enjoy a, a meal at 11 Madison? Uh, I mean, you know, you I've, eaten, I've eaten at 11 Madison once in the last, I've eaten there three times. And the most recent time I went was probably my most enjoyable time. Is I just went and ordered a la carte at the bar. Nice. And it was great. Right. Food was amazing. They sent up. They f- somehow somebody. Yeah, it's Eleven Madison. Their reconnaissance 
is good. On the floor is very yeah. good. You, know, they, you walk they in, they would know were. exactly yeah. who you were. Yeah. And they figured out who I was. And actually, I, I know Will very well. Oh, great. And I, I've known Daniel for a while. I don't know him well. Okay, but so I what do you Will. know about Will? What was he saying to you? Will what do you great. think? I, I mean, do you I think, think it was? Do you think it was that that Chris? There, the one theory, although I've heard this debunked, is that Christina was the Yoko Ono of the McCartney Lennon breakup. See, I don't see that. Yeah, I, and I other people say that's complete wonderful bullshit. Wonderful people. They both. Uh, I know they bought a place in more upstate New York recently. And yeah. um, look, running at the speed that you have to run to operate a restaurant at the level of Eleven Madison is is not something you can do in perpetuity. Right. You will get exhausted and burnt right. out doing that right. year after year right. after year. I mean, going for three Michelin stars, going for top 50 every year is, I mean, that's it a drives level of people excellence. like Bernard Loiseau and Burgundy right. to wander out with right. a shotgun and blow right. his head off. Right. I mean, it's it is pressure laden. Why stuff. do chefs, why do you, why do people do that? Just I think dry- um, we are. Up and well, I think we still have the mantle of being the most criticized profession of anything. We get raked over the coals for everything, and it's all so subjective. There's sometimes there's very good criticism, and you pull the good criticism out from from an article or whatever it is. Bernie's great criticism. Frank Bernie writes brilliant reviews that are really insightful as to why he's giving it a good mark. Mm-hmm. Um, Bad reviews are, are really good. You can always highlight like what they would need to change to be better. Mm-hmm. Immediately do that. But with the, the Yelp environment of the world, I think the pressure on chefs, mostly when you're buying in, when I brought Bernard Loiseau, that was uh, because he lost a number of Michelin stars right. and couldn't really deal with it. And this is a very famous chef in Burgundy. Um, and I think you personalize it. You personalize a Yelp review. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets on Yelp and has no idea that, you know, the chef here at Empire State South got in at 9 a.m. I don't require this, but, you know, got in at 9 a.m. and I'll leave at midnight. Uh, so to, for him to go home after a 13, 14, 15 hour a day and have to read a one-star review because somebody thought, oh, my God, this was awful. The pork belly was small. You know, right. And the portions gives, were the food was terrible and the portions were small. Yeah. But but often giving no real objective right. opinion as to what was wrong with the food. Like, do you feel like Yelp is losing a little? I mean, we all now know, like, I, you know, some of these are bad Yelp review. I'm like, I don't know who that person is. I don't. I mean, it's almost a, a parody now. And certainly I know Yelp reviews obviously hurt can still hurt a business. But do you think people are savvy enough to kind of use Yelp more as a was a telephone directory in a way as opposed to a real I mean do you use but it, it has do you impact no but if I you're would, in a town and you, know, you don't okay. know where to go eat will so you look if up I go Yelp? to Pittsburgh and I'm starving and I'm by myself and I need to go get the food I will open Google Maps and search restaurants up pops on all the things pops a Google review and a star rating that is definitely going to affect my decision on where okay to go. so it does have some so power they do have impact yeah. Um, yeah. And whether we like it or not, I do not go to Yelp ostensibly to find places where to eat. Right. But I do go for criticism and lists created by other people. Right. Um, uh, I have a lot of issues sometimes with uh, coverage on Eater uh, of okay. various food topics. Okay. Uh, but I think they're doing a good job sometimes. But I think some of their lists and their Eater maps are 
very critical to how I travel and how I plan yeah, in advance. Yeah, for the, I agree. I think that's Eater's big strong suit. And having known Bill Addison, who was the national food writer for uh, critic for them for a long time, and I know what he put into his lists, and I have to assume that the other people in the cities are equally as conscientious. And I think that's where they do, where Eater does a really good job. I'm not sure, you know, you can have arguments about how they deal with issues and all the other things when they're trying to do journalism is a little different thing. But I do think that that is those eater uh, hot 38s or the essential 38 restaurants is fantastic. Is great. And, and they're really good with openings and things like that. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's a, yeah, definitely they've, they've got some muscular. good fortes and they've done some better long form pieces. That I'm really interested in uh, mm-hmm. that have been really yeah, well done every once in a while. John Birdsall, the writer. brought. Oh, up, John's great. Yeah. He's a great writer. Uh, he brought up on Twitter an interesting link to a really long article on uh, the use of the term young guns. Oh, right. Uh, I thought that was it heavily, fascinating. But it was really fascinating to look at yeah. and, and kind of imploring them that maybe they should rethink the term. Well, it is, it's a very male um, term for one very, thing. It's a very, very male I mean, my guns term. are, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and it's violent. And it's sort of like, I think, the way Christina rethought her crack pie, which I know people – gave her a hard time with but you know I, and I, she relented for a long time on changing that and she finally did and it did it in the right way that but yeah. yeah i mean that's i mean it's you know you can argue are you over pc but i think there's a point at which again if restaurants and food are a cultural currency we need to be you know think that where we where we lead others will follow so you need to kind of think through these i things. think you need to i mean and somebody else has written a lot about uh or like addictive sauces i always hate that that's just bad writing i think that is bad writing but, ha- but also like heroin is addictive the sauce how people really name addictive. restaurants is really important and 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 the history of it like i had to do a lot of due tell diligence me, tell us a little this. bit about your empire state south well empire state south is a really interesting name because after the civil war basically the the, the government within Georgia created a council with marketing executives and economists um, to sort of drive this idea of Atlanta and Georgia would be the capital of the New South coming up. And it was uh, the tagline was it was going to be the Empire State of the South. Right. And so I just cinched it. I liked it. That's a great name. And everybody's always like, oh, is it meant to evoke like a New York style restaurant? I'm like, no, it's just a restaurant of like... Where people That's a fantastic name. That's a fantastic name. Yeah. But and in the South, you know, the n- things that we sort of assumed were sort of fine names, we're starting to really understand the history of them in ways that we haven't before and really, you know, I mean, as you know, we're struggling with our Confederate uh, past down here and the Confederate statues and uh, all of that is, is, I think, getting torn down in new ways, rightfully so, and thank God. But um, it's you have to be tricky with what yeah, you call I mean, things down look, here. Yeah, I mean, look, you, I, I live, we live in a very multicultural area in, in Atlanta, and you have to have empathy and understanding of all the situations of the background before you go naming something namby-pamby because it just right. doesn't work. Right. I mean, you've right. got to be smart about it. Right. Well, Spiller Park, tell us about that, too. Spiller Park was... For all of your were, listeners who don't understand, if you want to get the best well, that, cup that, of coffee too, in Atlanta... Named, named by Dale Donchi, my business partner at Spiller Park, which is a coffee shop, and it was the old baseball stadium on Ponce, Ponce de Leon Avenue, uh, that was an amazingly interesting baseball park uh, right on Ponce, right in the middle of the city. And it was kind of a triple-A team called the Atlanta Crackers. Right. But exactly. it was a segregation. It was a, yeah. it was all-white baseball team. Now, right. there were the Atlanta Black Crackers as well. Right. And eventually, the Atlanta Crackers became an integrated team. Right. But, you know, this was... Uh, 
Yeah, but it's it's a really historied, interesting story of that. But also the the Negro League played at Spiller Park sometimes, yep, they did. and so you sort of saw the integration of the history of baseball, and as messy as that was, come through Spiller Park in a way. So I I love the name for the history, and it yeah. is tricky history, you know. It is tricky history. It's always difficult. I'm looking at another article that you wrote, which was a really long form piece and had a lot of other graphing and interesting stuff in mm-hmm. the actual layout in the newspaper, which is from apples to popcorn, climate change is altering foods, grow, America grows. So tell me about this article. Well, we um, our climate, we have a big climate change team. And um, as Thank often you. happens, yeah, as often happens. A lot of people don't happens, have climate change teams. They don't yeah, believe in it. Right. Well, Sad. that's the, the New York Times does believe in climate change. We 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 feel that it is, in fact, true. Um, <laughs> just call, call it crazy. <laughs> Who would have thunk? Uh, and as happens in the food section, this is what Sam is great at, is often people will be like, well, I eat. I want to write about food. It's kind of like me saying, I go to the movies. I should be the movie critic. Well, really, there's a lot of intricacies around food. It's like a specialty beat, right? But the climate team wanted to write about uh, food and climate change, and they wanted to write, and they did. So we decided to team up with them, and this was part of a package of work we did with them. And some of the ideas, they were like, well, you know, like we stopped eating so much meat, and it would reduce carbon Blah, 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 and, and all of our foreheads hit the table because we're like, I don't think our food, people who are into food don't want to read about, you know, cows cause gas and, you know. So we were trying to come up with ways to do creative uh, stories about food with the climate team. And um, we all took different assignments. And so I just thought, I kept hearing about small farms or crops that were just like really having a hard time. And I thought, why don't we just take individual little crops and just tell a couple stories about that around the country. And they did a big graphic around this, but like the chair, the, the pie chair, the sour cherry growers in Northern Michigan are getting creamed because the ice, uh, the Lake Superior isn't freezing over long enough or hard enough. And that's what kept pests away for a long enough period of time and kept the flower, the, the buds happening at exactly the right time. And so what happens is if, there is, it's not cool enough. There's not enough chill hours. They're not getting enough cherries, but also the pests are coming in earlier and they're just getting decimated. And there's only like 450 families that still grow sour cherries up in northern Michigan. And, you know, you've got a whole culture built on the Michigan pie cherries. So that story, or, or in Washington state where you've got, um, which grows more organic apples than anywhere else in the country, but all their apples are getting sunburned. So they're having to, because it's hotter, so they've had to figure out this weird kind of netting to put over the groves to keep the sun from sunburning their apples. You know, so there's all these weird little changes and, you know, that... And, that and are not, any they're crop, not adding up to be little changes. They're yeah, adding up to be and, a wholesale... You know, but then there's some, you know, you know, they're able to grow golden kiwi in Texas now, and they're going to try to get golden kiwis to be a Texas crop. And you know, this, they're, you know, farmers are so adaptive, right? Uh, but the problem is, it takes 10, 15 years to create to, to breed out a plant that'll that'll relate to a certain climate and pest situation, right? So the and and the old land grant universities and all the federal funding to like figure out a cherry that can now grow in a little bit warmer weather it takes five to ten years for that to happen meanwhile the farmers are going to go out of business and we're cutting funding to all of those land grant universities so it's a really kind of a tough yeah, like a an complex. ad it's, yeah it's it is a mess so anyway that's what that story was about and i was just kind of interested in just started calling around and talking to different people and and it's really interesting but it's interesting how crops become popular uh, in 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 change 
like Georgia never used to grow blueberries. Now Georgia is the largest producer of blueberries in the entire country. Isn't that country. fantastic? It's just weird. I've never no... associated blueberries with Georgia. No, it's not those Georgia blueberries, uh, but they're good. And it's it's a lot of old uh, tobacco and cotton land that was has now been replanted with blueberries. Do you and have like a blueberry? Well here. Like, do you have a couple, or you just kind of rely on some of the farmers market guys? Yeah, or... we've got a lot of blueberry growers around Athens, so we got yeah. a ton around. There. I haven't noticed. I mean, I've had good. Georgia blueberries and bad ones, but I have not noticed that there's like, like, you know, with peaches, like you can really drill down into a good peach, but blueberries seem pretty the same across the board. Am I, I think missing it's it? basically one blueberry one type kind. that we all grow. Yeah. I okay. don't know. Okay. I don't know I that much about varietals maybe you blueberries. Would, you know, reveal some blueberry but secret on the peaches are funny. This is a really good peach season. Oh my God! It's um, and been it's, the best. And it's the best time right now because Suckers, it's all. We had the best peaches this it's year. Free stone peaches. Oh. But uh, and I luckily they're back to what I perceive as being the best peaches around. Because otherwise, I had a peach in Colorado a couple of years ago. I was in Aspen for something yeah. that was phenomenal. Yeah. I was like blown away. It was like one of those Palisades peaches. It was right. so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's really interesting. Just and, you like, know, there's some good peaches in California, too. I yeah, agree. they're but great. The thing is, I feel frog like they olive. don't. Yeah, those frog. I re, one of the best things I ever had was just like a peach on a. I had this classic, Peach on a plate for $12 at Chez Panisse. And I, I was in a field with Alice Waters. It was even better. <laughs> in a peach orchard. I'm like, I'm I'm that douchey food writer. Hey, I had that experience. I, the, more, the more I look back at restaurants that I admire and want to be, the more I fall in love with Chez Panisse every right. day. And... Right. Uh, to me, it's so timeless and so beautiful yeah. because it, it is hitting constantly and has since its inception on the one thing that I find the most elusive and nuanced in food, which is a reverence of simplicity and technical approach to simplicity that's beautiful. Right. Right. Thank uh, you. And I want to eat everything. Every time I eat there, I want to eat everything it's just food that they I'm very eat. happy. It's yeah. just like. What now, interesting, want? you know, the new food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, Soleil, is, did not. Soleho. Soleho did not put it on their Bay Area top 100 this year, and she kind of did a little bit of a takedown of Chez Panisse. I think it was, you know, the young kid coming in wanting to, you know, uh, just change cause. So it was interesting. I was wondering, I don't know if you read her review. It's like I know, going to prison, punching out the big guy? I think that maybe Right off the gate, you just get you in go. there and I think that go was after it. him like Even crazy. you're going to get creamed later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what happened. That's yeah. a good way to put it. I hadn't thought about that. Sometimes you just got to do what Gen you got to do. Gen Pop, man, it's rough out there. I evidently have watched too many shitty movies yeah, in my exactly. life. But yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it really you're works like, that You're in way. Gen Pop yeah. now. so But it is true. So there are good peaches. But the thing is with Georgia peaches and South Carolina peaches, I have discovered... I think it's just the sun. It's that long, hot, hot nights and sun that allows those sugars to happen in a way that just doesn't happen in other parts of the country. There's just Global something warming, about that. Good for peaches. Yeah, there you go. In really fact, that guy, I remember peaches. I was talking to this peach girl once, and I'm like, "So selling peaches? What's that about? How does that work?" And he goes, "You know, with peaches because they're so perishable." And so, he goes, "I'm basically holding out an ice cube to you and telling, asking you how much you'll pay for it as it melts in my hand." And I was uh -huh. like, "That is a way to look at selling peaches." Yeah, I'm looking at. I pulled out an old cookbook, and some of these. Uh, there, there's a good connection to the New York Times in them. That, uh, it, they're written by Raymond Sokolov, uh, who was in his day. He was kind of the sifty of his time. In a way, um, yes, he was. And he, but these are great old cookbooks that the Times put together. This one's called Great Recipes. That one's just written by Sokolov without the Times. Um, but I, I'm just always interested in 
how recipes are written now as to how they used to be written. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be making a fricassee de volaille right mm -hmm. now, but maybe we would, but we just call it something different. I a like fricassee de volaille is, uh, you know, it's a foul stew. Okay. Well, let's call it that. Okay. This one's got duck in it. Can you put it on a sheet pan? Because apparently that's no, what we're no, supposed no. to do now. Okay. Oh, yeah, or in an Instant Pot. That's yeah, what we're supposed yeah. to do now. Do you do the Instant Pot? Um, you know what I do it for is uh, stocks and broths. That's the only thing I use it for because it cuts the time for me a little bit. It does, bit. but and, the pressure uh, cooker does that too. Yeah, but, but that's essentially what it is. Well, yeah. you do. You have an Instant <laughs> sort of Pot. Do. Honestly, I thought I could do rice in it because I'm like famous for my inability to make rice. And uh, I have tried and tried and tried all the ways to make rice. And then say, oh, your Instant Pot, you'll make rice. But it's too much. It's a headache to pull it out. But if I get a bunch of old beef bones and roast them off and I uh -huh. can I it's it's sort of I use it just basically I use it as a fancy pressure cooker. Is Melissa Clark half Instapot cyborg now? You know, Melissa Clark I think uh, is a good working food journalist and thought, I'm going to see what I can do with the Instant Pot. I don't she really did that, a lot with the Instant Pot. She did. Who knew? Well, you know the slow cooker. You, I know the slow I, cooker. Okay, Melissa slow, knows the Instant Pot. You now is a slow, because you have a whole, you did a whole book, Slow Cooker I've got a expert. whole thing. Yeah. Slow cooker versus Instant Pot. Where are you in that? I, I like the Instant Pot. The Instant Pot's kind of like Betamaxy to me. I think yeah. it'll go away. Uh, maybe it's right. even superior technology. It just seems kind of gimmicky. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you're right. It is a pressure cooker. And I don't like absurdly pre-programmed functioning on things. I just like low, medium, high. Yeah. Because I actually I know how to cook. Right. I don't press. I don't like pressing a button that says rice. Yeah. I yeah. like turning things on and cooking. Rice. Yeah, yeah. But I that's maybe different. Like, a lot of people no, like I that think push it, it takes a lot to fool around and learn how to. That's why I don't. It's like I say, like, I think it's great. I, my, a pressure cooker would have been fine for my beef stock, I'm sure. So um, Now, one really interesting thing in the Times written from a food perspective that I don't think really was meant to be was the guy who started to, doing food delivery for one of the companies. Oh, that was fantastic. And it really blew Business apart story. because he really showed that uh, – Basically, this, this company was taking all the tips that were ostensibly from the customer's perspective destined for the pockets of the person to deliver the food. They weren't going there. They were going into the company coffers and being redistributed amongst employees some way, but not in full fulfillment. Right. Now, I have to – But that – that was a great food yeah. story. That was a business. Uh, yeah, he just got on the bike and he st became a delivery guy. And he, the way he described it was perfect because you got like, okay, I have to choose: am I going to grab the Grubhub or am I going to hope that Uber Eats is going to give me a better deal? Is it going to be closer to where my bicycle is? And you know, you got to see all the calculations that had to happen to, for the guy to make money. And so, a certain thing would pop up and say, "You're going to get six dollars and sixty-five cents for this." trip to go deliver this food and you get there and the person adds the tip onto the app and the person the driver the rider still only gets 665 because the money goes somewhere else so it was a good lesson always tip in cash uh you know for the driver but they also changed that policy then. they did soon thereafter they that's got the so power much of journalism and that is the power of journalism but and let me ask you this isn't that sort of like what restaurants do with tips i still want to understand the pooling tip sitch because i i'm very confused how that works well, within Georgia, you really all the tips go to uh, go to direct members who have contact uh, of the team who have direct contact with guests. Okay, uh, delivering food and delivering beverage. Okay, that's where the pool tips go. That's okay. 
ostensibly where they have to go. Um, kitchen pooling d- does not occur in Georgia usually. Okay. Um, and uh, under no auspices is any management or ownership ever allowed to take any portion of a tip. Okay. And that's been the really historic fraud within the restaurant sphere. You know, restaurants are just so full of dread and exploitation, unfortunately. Right, uh, right, but yeah, right. that's one of the ways that people got, uh, we're ripping people off. So do you feel it's happening a lot? I mean, we see a lot of suits, uh, you know, and I think the Bastianich Empire got hit with a hard one for they some did. of this. Yep. And so what were they doing? I mean, is that common practice or were they They were the tip exception? pooling. To the best of my knowledge, they were tip pooling and paying managers ah. uh, the large amounts out of that tip pool, which is there you go. a no-no. Will tipping ever go away in this country? I don't think so. I think we've had a lot of people uh, go down the road of attempting uh, gratuity included. And I think a lot of them have changed course and reverted to regular gratuity systems. The, the way I put it is this. I, 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 I like the gratuity included when I'm a customer. It's a surprise to me. It's interesting. From a waiter's perspective, I used to have a waiter named Paul. And Paul was a great human and uh, is still a great human. He just doesn't work for me anymore. But he did work for me at 5 and 10 for like 16 years. Paul had nurtured relationships with some of the regulars there to the degree that they requested him every time. They wanted him. They tipped him really well. If Does that work that Paul put into those that relationship over time, uh, that expanded even outside of work with these people, but warranted a, or granted him a large amount of tips from it, don't you think he deserves that? Yeah, I do. So I don't know if it should... And as a customer, I, I want my idea. money to go to him. Right, exactly. Um, right. And that, I think, needs to be taken into account, uh, that, that, that we should be honoring the customer's request. Exactly like the DoorDash stuff, um, the customer's expectation was that that delivery driver would get that money. Right. And that's key in the relationship with a gratuity, right. I think. Because you feel like so. such a schmuck sitting there in the rain making some guy ride his bike or her bike to you to give you food that you want to, like... It helps you to feel less guilty, like, buddy, I'm giving you five bucks. This is real. I think there's a story there on how the Seamless and all those services, Uber Eats, all that, how are they affecting restaurant business? Yeah. Well, aren't restaurants setting up, I mean, they're setting up places just for, I mean, you've got to build in like an Uber Eats stand now, right? Right. But, you know, a $10 Uber Eats meal delivered to your door, Uber Eats takes 31 to 37% Does it really? of it. That big? I mean, that's... That's untenable for me yeah. to cook food of any sort of value yeah. and, uh, yeah. or, or goodness. Do you think it'll, it'll last? I don't know. I, I, I fear that all of these things are built on speed and mass efficiencies and deviate so far from quality concerns that it's just it'll just become about button sustenance. Yeah, exactly. And I think that restaurants hopefully will feel strong enough that they don't have to feel like they need to do it i think right now everybody feels like they have to do it and they don't secretly i do one meal that's delivered by seamless do you what's no, that I'm, I'm like i'm not I, 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 yeah. do you, it's, do it's you? a molded jello thing nice with prizes in it i'll see that's special that's because yeah. you're ahead of the crew thinking always nobody thinking. buys it do you do much you know do we don't do here. any we don't do any of it and, and you know, we'd buy into it later on, if, but it'd be probably a separate facility or something like that that can do it. But I just don't think uh, – to me, that type of thing is 
it's about feeding people, but it's so far away from what I love about this business. Right. I don't know if I can ever really adopt to it. Right. And are know. you working? Did you just tell me you're working on a new cookbook? I'm working on a book, uh, yeah, right now. Pivoting over to recipes how to again. Cook, how to make kids cook well, like leaving college yeah. or leaving to go to college. So kind of built on the premise of if you've got – I always say in cooking lessons that cooking's like – you bore it down to the idea of a Lego set, and each piece of Lego is a technique and a skill that you have. I just have a bigger set than most people. I see. But I want to give people a set of 24 blocks that then they can build a really right. good, nourishing right. way of cooking. So, like, I know how to saute. You know yeah. how to poach an egg. You know how to saute how to roast a chicken. Yeah. Yep. How to roast Steam a carrot. Steam vegetables make, or whatever. Uh, yeah, you know, makes uh, the basic sauce and make yeah. uh, mayonnaise like make and salsa verde yeah. and things like that. And then you can have your flank steak and your salsa verde, or you could have your eggs and your salsa yeah. verde. Yeah, or you can or have you a poached your... egg and put it on anything. Right. Because that's what we did back in man, 2005. I think we're over that time now. You think? I, I think we're know. like it again. I think we like the poached egg again. I know. Well, you, you, I think the poached eggs are coming back. I think they're coming you, back. You heard it good. here first. I know how to do them too. Yeah. So I feel lucky. Do you Kim. do that one? I'm sorry. One last question before yep. we go. Do you do the the spin the water for the post bag? Okay, do the swirl, but no I vinegar. Actually, That's silly. I do. I do. You do the little vinegar. Okay. I do a little bit, and the reason that is is it's a chemical reaction which causes the egg white to want to adhere to itself. Okay. Um, and that, but I do season towards the very end of the cooking process. Okay. It goes into virtually unsaline water at the beginning. Okay. But the swirls key. Swirl and just a kiss also, of vinegar. But also, I find uh, cracking the egg into a ramekin before pouring yeah, it in is key. helps it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I was just wondering if the vinegar is going to make my egg taste a little vinegary, but I just have to be a const- little restrained. I love vinegar. Okay. I love oeuf moret. Oof you know, moret, yes. In, uh, Delicious. Wine. So good. All right. Thank you for that tip. I just wanted to leave with one good. Kim, you are a, uh, an inspiration. You're an awesome journalist, and uh, thank you for being on this dorky show I have. <sighs> It's a fantastic show, and I think everybody should listen to it. And I love sitting here in your restaurant. It reminds me that I've got to come back for dinner soon. We're in the pecky Cypress corner. It's quiet. <laughs> Kim, off to a good day. Yep. Thanks. 